0: Hello. Welcome to the Blue Grid Podcast. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become greedier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, Veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity to help airmen and really any service member, anyone interested, to build grit, resilience, mental toughness. What are unique methods and practices our guests use to overcome struggles? What does it take? To build grit. Good
1: afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Today we have Lieutenant Colonel Jamie Humphreys with us. Jamie Humphreys survived one of the deadliest insider attacks in Kabul, Afghanistan in 2011. Nine Americans and at least one Afghan soldier died in a shooting by an Afghan military pilot. The event was covered by CBS News. Lieutenant Colonel Humphreys, before we get to talk about the story of your survival... Tell us a little bit about yourself and your military career.
2: Yeah, sure. I was born in a small town called Monroe, Washington. It's about 30 miles north of Seattle. I decided to go to school, of course, like most of us do. I went to Central Washington University. I met my wife there. We weren't satisfied with just coming out of college and getting a job. So I always wanted to travel and she wanted to travel. And we thought the military was a good option to be able to do that. I knew I didn't want to be in the Marine Corps. I knew I didn't want to be on a boat. So it was between the Army and the Air Force, and luckily I chose the Air Force. And although I had my degree already, I came in as an enlisted airman and uh, was a Security Forces member, and that was in 1998. And then about three years into my first tour, I wanted to try to earn a commission, so I applied for a commissioning program, um, officer training school, and I was originally denied. Uh, My first application times were a little bit more competitive back then to get a commission. Um. So I applied again for another program called the uh, Professional Officer Course Early Release Program, and I was accepted. So I went back to school for a year, and went through ROTC 3 and 400 level classes, and then was commissioned following that program, where I came in then as a commission officer in the public affairs uh, career field.
1: Why public affairs?
2: I had down Intel and communications as my first and second choices. I thought those would translate pretty well to the outside world if I didn't enjoy my next term. I threw public affairs down as a wild card, as a throwaway number three, because I like to talk, I think. I had some misconceptions, I think, about what it was, but I got it. And I can honestly tell you that it's been perfect. It's been great, and I think it's one of the best career fields that we have in the Air Force. So, yeah, so came in, uh, went to Seymour Johnson Air Force Base. That was my first job, um, home of the F-15E Strike Eagle in Goldsboro, North Carolina, And then went from there, you know, and proceeded in my private life to have four sons uh, with my wife. And so they're ages 20, 14, 10, and 5. Yeah, many jobs. Seymour, the Pentagon, um, Barksdale, gosh, Minot, uh, deployed several times, Mildenhall, and now New York City, where I work as the national engagement, media engagement director in New York City for our career field.
1: What does that mean? Can you tell us about the job?
2: Sure. So what we do is we welcome distinguished visitors in that come into the city. For example, the chief of staff, the secretary of the Air Force. If they make a trip up here, we work to get them on a news broadcast of some sort, um, maybe a speaking engagement with a think tank, maybe a speaking engagement at a college, maybe discussing areas of interest with a civic group or into different kinds of entertainment, like on A&E and stuff like that. So we work together quite frequently if projects overlap. We're constantly pitching stories on behalf of the Air Force to try to get our airmen on television.
1: Very interesting. Uh, one of the things that you've mentioned in your career that you traveled quite a bit and you've been stationed in yep. multiple locations and you've been deployed a couple of times. So yep. tell me about your deployment experiences. Tell me about your deployment to Kabul, Afghanistan in 2011.
2: Sure. Sure. The first deployment was 2002, if I recall correctly, and that was to the Combined Air Operations Center at Al-Yedid Air Base in Qatar. The times were a little bit different. Now I understand there's a new KOC; It's a whole new facility and located in a new place, but they still do essentially the same thing. And so that was a little strange because that was the kickoff of Operation um, Iraqi Freedom. And so things were new and things were moving quickly. That was an interesting time. I was a second lieutenant. My next deployment was 2008 to ISAF, International Security Assistance Force, in Kabul as well, downtown in the city. That was for six months. And then my third deployment was in uh, 2011. And I'll I'll come back to it. And my last deployment was to—now, I wouldn't consider this a deployment, but the Air Force does. It was to Tampa to support CENTCOM and information operations within um, CENTCOM at MacDill Air Force Base, which was— A Fantastic experience. So 2011, I was deployed Air Force Global Strike Command. And my job was to be assigned to the 438th Air Expeditionary Wing in Kabul. And that's at the airport, Kabul International Airport. There's two sides to the airport. There's the Afghan and the American side. One side is a coalition compound. The other side is run by the Afghan Air Force. The only thing that separates the camp is like a large, I'd call it a stream, but then a fence, a perimeter fence. So most of the coalition operates on the coalition side. We're actually assigned in that mission over with the Afghans on a day in and day out basis. And our job there is to train them, uh, mainly in operations and maintenance, learning how to fly a fixed wing or rotary wing aircraft. However, you have people like me that are training in public affairs. You have a, a lawyer training his counterpart or her counterpart. You have other people in staff agencies that are training their counterparts. But mostly it was maintenance and operations, teaching Afghans how to fly and maintain an aircraft to fight the Taliban. And it's a year deployment, and I arrived, I think, in February of 2011, if I'm not mistaken. In addition to that, there's a training that you must go to. I can't speak with authority about how long it is, because I forget, but I I wanna say it was like uh, six to eight weeks. And mine was at Camp Dix, Lakehurst, up uh, McGuire, Lakehurst in New Jersey. So mine was about that long.
1: Pre-deployment training, you mean, right?
2: Yeah, and your training, your pre-deployment training for that period of time with all the people that you're going to deploy with and work with.
1: You deploy with together?
2: For the next year.
1: And you deployed as a PE officer to train your counterparts?
2: I did. So my job there was to train Afghans. And then I was also in charge of doing the public affairs for the wing. So if I get media queries, stories, photos, I did all that as well. So two things. And in the meantime, I volunteered to work at a place called the Thunder Lab, which was training Afghan, uh, potential Afghan pilots, English. So at nighttime, they lived with us in a compound And we're helping them speak English to get proficient enough to fly an airplane because the international language of flight is English. And that's what they were trying to do is get proficient enough to come to the States and finish their pilot training to be a certified pilot in the Afghan Air Force.
1: Did you have much close interaction with your ANA counterparts?
2: Oh, yeah. Every day. Every day. So that was my job. They had days off, just like we do. I want to say their days off were Friday and Saturday. I would say four or five days a week, you're constantly training. Now, I had a staff of a photographer and a video person as well. So they were, you know, trained in their specialty. I trained in my specialty. But we were constantly over with our Afghan counterparts just to try to improve and train.
1: Tell me about the incident. This is now 2011. I don't remember what month it was, but it was in the beginning of your deployment, two
2: months in. Right. Yeah, that was the tough part. It was April 27th, so I had only been there a couple months. You know, I was there long enough to understand. I had learned the rules of the road about the camp and what was going on and, and gotten in a good groove and was excited to be there and, and accomplish some things. So I was scheduled to go over at 8 a.m. to meet my counterpart. His name was Lieutenant Colonel Bahadur, and he only has one name. This was a daily occurrence. You know, I had a schedule with him, and I would go over and meet with him. And your day typically starts out with talking about family and having tea with the Afghans. So I had planned on an hour or two with him because that's how long it takes. So your first half hour is just talking and shaking hands and stuff like that. So, but I was scheduled to meet him at 8am and my interpreter, when I came into the office, told me that Colonel Bahadur was canceling our meeting. But then we got a, a second call from one of Colonel Bahadur's staff members who was looking for office space and he needed my help. He thought that I could go over with my interpreter and help him get some office space. And at the time, I thought this was a good thing. And he was looking, trying to get a desk. I wanted to do everything I could to help him. So I said, sure, let's go. So me and my interpreter, Yama, dropped what we were doing and we walked over. I want to say that process took roughly 30 to 40 minutes. We did that. And then from our American compound to that compound was roughly three, 400 yards or something like that. And these are Afghan buildings that we're going into.
1: So you're going from your part of the compound to now to ANA compound.
2: Yeah, you walk over to the Afghan part, which was close to the American compound. I mean, I want to say they're really close. And, you know, you're encouraged to interact and be close. And I mean, that's that's how you're training. So
1: right. And that's your mission, right?
2: Yeah, that's your mission. You trust them. They trust you. And life goes on. So we looked for office space. I thought we made progress. And I said goodbye to the Afghan soldier. Or Airman, I don't remember who it was. And Yama and I talked for a few minutes. And then I saw four people walking towards the building. I recognized three out of the four. So I walked over, and it was a nice April day. And we exchanged pleasantries, said hello at the front entrance of this building. And then I walked away. It had to be at that moment that the attack occurred. Because I walked to the next building, which was probably... I want to say a hundred yards from there. And there was a radio call that there were a lot of people in trouble and shots fired and and things were happening. So there was mass confusion as you can imagine in this situation. So I was there, I was a captain at the time, by the way, I, I didn't mention that, but I was with a Lieutenant Colonel named Lieutenant Colonel John Howard. He was listening to the radio and we both were shocked that what was happening. There were reports of two gunmen that were shooting, and that our airmen had come under fire. Your immediate response is to go help, right? But at the time, we weren't required to carry an M4 rifle on the camp. So all I had was a nine millimeter pistol, and I had 30 rounds is all I had. I looked at Colonel Howard and I said, what do you want to do? What actions do you want to take? And he said, I want to secure this building that we were in. We had students in the building. I think his concern was to secure the building, protect the students, protect each other, We had a British soldier with us, and we had some American uh, U.S. Army soldiers assigned to the building we were in. So that's what we did.
1: But it sounds like your lieutenant colonel was really calm, and that was a very good course of action.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I knew him. He was calm. This was his building. So his weapon, his long rifle, his his M4 was there. So he pulled that out. Uh, The British Army officer had a long rifle, too, so he pulled that out. I only had a pistol, so I had that out. Now, the Army soldiers had their long rifles too, so I went with one to the corner of the building. He saw something and fired off a couple rounds at a target that I'm still I'm not sure what he was firing at, but he saw something. And then I went to the back of the building because we were vulnerable. It was a big building we were in. I just wanted to keep making the rounds to make sure— that this building was secure and somebody wasn't coming in the back because we were told that there were multiple shooters making their way through the camp is what we heard on the radio.
1: What was going through your head at the time?
2: You know, quite honestly, I pulled out my phone and I sent a text to my wife and I said, whatever you hear on the news, I'm okay. Because I knew whatever was going on, she was going to hear about it. And I just ate.
1: So your first thought was to comfort her?
2: Yeah, of course. And that's all I did was send a quick, probably 10 word text saying that I'm okay, and I let that go. And then I wanted to be with the other folks in the compound to make sure we were okay and just look at each other's backs because there were multiple entries into this building. We just weren't sure. You know, your adrenaline kicks in, and you don't know what's going on. Well, it turns out the report of the two shooters was false, which is more often than not the case uh, with these situations. And so we sat there, and we secured this building for probably eight hours.
1: Meaning that typically it's one shooter? Uh,
2: well, you just don't— I mean, your first reports are always mm-hmm. just not accurate. You know, that there were two shooters and they're making their way through the camp. That couldn't be further from the truth at the end. But we didn't know that. I mean, we didn't know what was going on. We didn't know if the students in our building were, were turning on us. We we had no idea. So we just wanted to protect each other. And little by little, other members of the camp started trickling into our building. So what was going on was they they created about three pickup points for people to gather in so they can, you know, evacuate us. They didn't want multiple buildings. They wanted us all to gather in a few buildings so we could get back to the other side to safety is what was going on. So
1: who took charge of all the directing of the traffic?
2: Uh, well, it, it was Colonel Howard's building. So was him. Um, he was the highest ranking person there. I was helping him. There were other people helping him, you know, at the end, When we had been there eight hours, I want to say, gosh, there were 50 or 60 people that had finally gathered in the building. So, you know, at the time I then met a master sergeant who came into the building and I had not met him before. He was new to our mission. He was covered in blood from head to toe. His name was Master Sergeant Chris Banks. When I saw Chris, I knew it was really bad. Whatever had happened, I knew was pretty bad. And he came and sat next to me, And he was just very quiet. You could tell he was he was shaken, he was upset. I just I didn't say anything to him, I just sat with him. And then come to find out, you know, right after that, I had heard that we had nine of our members of the camp killed and that didn't survive. So, you know, you don't know what to think at that point. Eventually we were all evacuated and OSI was waiting for us on the other side to take statements from everybody. The aftermath, we weren't allowed to go back for two or three days. And then you start the process of going back to your mission, a sense of not trusting your counterparts. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So it's hard because I was looking at another nine months of being in this location. And this, for the folks out there that have been in the service a little bit, that was the height of the insider attacks. They were happening all the time. So at any given moment, you are thinking, oh, my gosh, is somebody going to try to kill me today? Mm. So I was dealing with nine months of anxiety and frustration and anger because somebody turned on your friends who who are trying to train them and help them. So there's all sorts of emotions that you're going through, a sense of frustration, anger, sadness. I mean, you name it. But eventually you have a mission and you have to go back and, you know, do your mission and look at the Afghans that you're working with and say, well, they they weren't a part of this. You know, they didn't do this. So that was the toughest part.
1: Did you feel like you lost trust in your counterparts or maybe even your own fellow soldiers or fellow airmen?
2: Yeah, of course, you don't have any trust at that moment. And, you know, I want to say I knew I would say seven out of the nine that were deceased. We had trained together at Fort Dix. We had gone to dinners together. I knew the names of their kids, you know, because you become quite tight when you're training. So then to turn around and help pack up their stuff to send back home, you know, their personal effects and carry their coffins and stuff like that. It's a very sobering experience. It's one that no one should have to go through. You know what I mean?
1: How is uh, Chris Banks? Did you talk to him after?
2: You know, Chris is retired. I follow him on social media. So what Chris did was rushed into that building because he was in the vicinity and he actually carried Master Sergeant Tara Brown and put her in a vehicle and tried to save her life on the other side of the camp. She was alive and she just didn't make it. Chris is a real hero. Chris ran in when he was um, next to the building and did everything he could. But no, he's retired and doing well, I think. And Best of luck to him in retirement. You know, I have reached out to some of the wives, some of the spouses of the deceased, to let them know that I saw and spoke with their with their loved ones that day. I don't know if I was the last to speak with them, but the four people I encountered outside of the building were four of the victims. I reached out to just say, you know, they were in good spirits and I was there, and I saw them and I said hello. And they appreciated that.
1: How was uh, the commander, um, Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel, I forgot his name. You just mentioned him, the one who was in charge, Colonel Howard.
2: Oh, Colonel Howard. I, once he left, I lost track of Colonel Howard, and I haven't spoken to him since. But I'll tell you, many people that were there, you know some people have had a really tough time with that experience.
1: Can you tell me what that means?
2: There were a lot of senior folks. In this training mission, you have a lot of senior people. who, Because you, you need to be somewhat mature to to work with Afghans and train Afghans. So some of them were probably closer to retirement or closer to, you know, they were thinking about separating and such. And I know a lot have retired. I know some separated, you know, got a medical discharge because of this incident. They just couldn't go on. And I still see a lot on social media still talking about how this affects them. And quite honestly, some don't believe the investigation, findings and how it happened. So they're very vocal about that.
1: They don't believe that there was justice, uh, kind of due justice was accomplished.
2: They don't believe that there was just a single lone gunman shooter that acted on his own behalf.
1: Oh, oh, I see.
2: That there may have been an insider situation where this was planned and coordinated. So that's their belief. You know, some of them. I don't necessarily feel the same, but, you know, they're entitled to their opinion, of course. But, you know, the toughest part about this thing is that I was supposed to be there at eight o'clock and where the shooting happened was right next door to where I train. And I'm pretty good with a nine millimeter pistol. So I have a lot of survivors. I don't know if you call it guilt or not. I don't even know what the right word is. But I feel like if I was supposed to be or if I was where I was supposed to be, maybe I could have helped. You know what I mean? So I think about that a lot. I think about. If I was there and my counterpart had not canceled our meeting, could I have stopped him? You know, because the last victim was Captain Nate Nylander, and he was encountered out in the hallway of our office. And I think about that. Could I have saved Nate's life? Perhaps, you know, and you just never know. It's a big what if, you know.
1: Did you talk about your experiences or struggles that you're describing to me right now with anybody outside of your friends and family? Did you seek professional help?
2: No, not at all. I barely talked to my wife about it, quite honestly. I've talked to airmen about it, you know, when when you have your airmen that are, do they complain a little bit? (laughs) So when they do, I like to tell them a story about, you know, some folks that aren't with us anymore that maybe they could learn from when they're complaining about the heat or (laughs) some other struggle they're having in in life, try to get them back to understanding they joined the Air Force for a reason. And uh, these nine people are probably a good reason why they joined the Air Force and to try to bring them back to reality a little bit. But no, I have not sought professional help in any way. And
1: did you feel that there were moments that you could have benefited from this, but you chose not to for if so then what would be the reasons?
2: Yeah, of course. I encourage, as a lieutenant colonel, right, I've had airmen work for me for many years, and I think we're in a good place in the Air Force where we encourage our everyone to seek professional help if they need it. We have very good services on bases for all sorts of different things, whether it be um, chemical dependencies or, or just professional help, um, mental health support, and I've always encouraged airmen to use those services. But for me, if I'm a leader of an office, I just don't like the stigma attached to me that I'm seeking professional help. And that's just my personal feeling. If I'm in charge, I don't want to be viewed by airmen as unstable in any way. Unstable, I'm sorry, in any way. I feel that that would be the perception, whether it's right or wrong. And I don't want that perception attached to me. But you got to remember, I joined the Air Force In 1998, times have changed over the last 19, 20 years, whereas it's encouraged to go and seek help, whereas it wasn't back at that point, you know. And so I think times are changing for the better for everybody. I think it's great. I just haven't gotten past that because that was just my my indoctrination into the Air Force, you know. So maybe I will at some point. You know, just to, to have a conversation, which I think is very beneficial with a provider. There's no badness that can come out of that. But for me, while I'm serving on active duty, I just, I choose not to. But I have spoken to other people that were there, of course, and we've shared some feelings and stories and that helps.
1: Do you feel like, so there is a term that we use often and maybe overuse at times, post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. Maybe there is a term that we don't use enough in my view, which is post-traumatic growth. Yeah. Do you feel that you've gained something different? You've gained a different perspective that you've, you've grown. And can you tell me about that? And how did you change?
2: Yes, very much so. Yeah. So a couple things, good and bad. I think a lot of people will tell you, and I don't want to speak for other people. I'll just speak for myself. Afghanistan, and I'm sure Iraq is the same, changes you fundamentally. It just changes you as a person. It's a it's a different place. It's a different environment. And you see things. They have to change you. They just do. So now I'm more heightened to things on the bad side. For example, I was walking down in New York City a couple days ago And a truck that was making a delivery in town had dropped its – whatever its load was on the ground, and it made a loud noise, and I jumped because I've heard a 2,000-pound car bomb relatively close to my camp. When I hear loud sounds like that, I do tend to jump, and it wasn't like that before Afghanistan. So you're more heightened to the things around you. I'm more heightened to people in public places and what they're doing. Are they a shooter of some sort? What's my exit plan to get out of here? How do I protect my family? When I see people that just don't look right, I have a more sense of what's going on around me, if that makes sense. Yeah. On the mental side, I left in 2012. It would have been the start of 2012. More appreciative of the things in life, too, because the nine people that died, their lives were snuffed out pretty quickly. They didn't have a chance. So I appreciate some things in life a little bit more than I think before that deployment. Relationships, a little bit more. Just, you know, waking up in the morning a little bit more. Those things mean more to me.
1: Can you tell me in behavioral terms, what do you do that's different? Here you're saying, you know, you appreciate or you kind of think of things maybe from different perspective. but what do you do differently?
2: Well... I can tell you since then, I've had a deeper appreciation for airmen. And not to say I didn't before, because I was an enlisted security forces member, but I was a captain then, so I was kind of probably selfish a little bit. I was trying to get promoted. I was thinking about myself a little bit. Since then, that hasn't been the case. Everything that I do is 100% focused on the airmen that work for me. Into helping them get promoted and helping them with their with their personal lives in whatever capacity that is, mm. helping them with education, whatever. It, it's just not about me. Since that time, I don't care about my personal situation as much as I care about them, because it's about them now, and it has been since then. And I, I hope that comes across to them a deeper appreciation, just to see a sunrise or the sun go down. You know, just to sit and pause. And take things in a little bit more than you would normally if you hadn't been through a situation like this. You know, I went to a concert the other night just to sit and listen to the music and just to soak it in, you know, So stuff like that, I don't know how to explain it, but a deeper appreciation for relationships and learning about other people, because those sorts of things will change you, you know for the worse, um, but sometimes for the better, you know, so I can take goods and bads from it, quite honestly. So for
1: people who were in the same shoes as you were, you witnessed the attack and survived it, some of them didn't fare as well, I imagine, right? Right. And you said that uh, many of them had to leave the military service because of medical or mental health conditions. Yeah. What do you think makes a difference between somebody who fares well and somebody who maybe struggles
2: more? Shoot, that's a good question. Because I remember thinking at the start, you know, I remember one person left the theater right after it happened and left the deployment early. And I remember thinking, uh, well, why are they leaving early if we're here? Now I kind of understand it better. They may have been in a different place than I was. And quite honestly, I was trying to do my job after this happened. I was still trying to answer media queries, and I was focused on my job. Because in a crisis situation, that's when a public affairs officer really earns their money in a crisis, crisis communication crisis situation. So I didn't...
1: Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I didn't think of that, yeah.
2: I didn't even, you know, think about the repercussions of what we were dealing with for many days later. And then it sunk in, you know, because we were answering media queries and taking photos and, you know, all that sort of stuff that comes along with my job. I spoke with the chaplain many days after it happened, just to have a conversation. And the chaplain and I were friends. And that helped to at least speak out about your feelings, what you were experiencing. So to get back to your question, me different than some I don't know if I have the right answer for that question, other than people are different. They have different backgrounds, come from different places, are able to deal with things differently. I've dealt with it fine. Others have not. And I really don't know the answer to that just different people.
1: Hmm. And even for you, so I imagine being in a leadership position like you have been for the last few years, uh-huh. that could be a lonely place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I often think that being a leader could be one of the loneliest of jobs. It doesn't have to be, but but it can be. Sure. And did you ever find yourself struggling maybe even more because of that? And if so, then can you tell me what are some of the specific strategies? And one of them you mentioned, you articulated it very well, which is you resumed your work routine, right? So you did something that was really healthy and grounding for you. Is there something else that yeah. that you, you can think of as strategies that you can recommend to other people?
2: Yeah, yes. I think you're right. I think being a, let's say at a wing, a wing commander is a very lonely position. I mean, Let's be honest about it. They, you know, it's usually an O six or an O seven, and they're in a leadership position. They can't, they can't complain down the chain, and but they have things they have to talk about. Yeah, it's a tough job, I guess. For me, I speak a lot to my wife because that's my best friend. You know, I speak to her about many things and bounce many things off of her because I know it's a no judgment zone when it comes to her. And although she's not in the military, she's smarter than me, so she can give me life advice. And stuff like that, I speak with my father quite frequently, so that helps. but I think the other thing is to get into a physical fitness routine if people aren't you know into that, and that allows you a good hour, hour and a half a day to go and unwind and and exercise. I think that's good for mind and body. I'm not a very religious guy, so that that hasn't been part of my routine, but I assume some people are, and that will help um, to do that. I think it's good to take leave. When you have leave, leave is something that we earn. The folks that don't take it for years on end, I, I don't understand it because I think it's pretty good uh, for <laughs> someone in charge or or anybody to take leave and, and unwind and get away from their job. And
1: You're speaking with somebody who is 55 days of leave. <laughs>
2: Yeah, just enjoy leave, you know, and I think it's also good to take your office and just, you know, just enjoy a cold beverage and have dinner and and just talk about things other than work. It seems like you're constantly in a position to talk about your career all the time, but you don't have to. You can (laughs) discuss other things. One of the things we do is go out, you know, once a quarter, or we did at my last duty station and And do a team building exercise. So whether that be or do some sort of escape room activity, work as a team, that's good. So there are many things I think you can do. Sit and read a book.
1: (laughs) It's interesting that all the interviews that I've done, definitely there is a theme, which is... Social connections relying to people that are close to you, your team, your family, spiritual fitness and exercise, those are the things that are important and they just keep coming up. I think all the interviews so far. I don't know, maybe we're looking for a magic pill to help cope with struggles. Some of these tragedies they do work. Takes an effort to take them on, but they do work.
2: And unfortunately When I talk to a lot of veterans, the answer for them, whether they be in the military or out of the military, is usually alcohol, and that's not the right answer, right? That doesn't help anything, but that's what I hear a lot of veterans say, is they have to go and they have to consume alcohol Mm -hmm. to deal with the things that they've experienced. They know that's not the right answer, but it's a thing they can do that is not illegal, that helps them cope with whatever they've been through just for everybody listening you know i wasn't the hero in this thing i didn't run to the room chris banks was the real hero some of our other response forces that went in were the real folks that you know saw utter disaster on that day i was a guy that helped clean up the situation at the end just one of the many
1: well i hope chris is doing well
2: i think he's doing quite well he's a good guy
1: (laughs) excellent Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this conversation and your take on resiliency and grit.
2: Yeah, yeah. So to end, I guess, of course, I think we have great services in the Air Force. I think there's a lot of good things going on. And and I like the culture that we've come a long way since when I first joined about encouraging people to use all these resiliency programs. There's so many good programs out there to use, you know, and and I just hope our airmen are using them and I'm encouraging them to take full advantage of them because we have some really good professionals that are doing good things and it can only help things. It's not a bad thing. It's a good problem to have, you know.
1: Well, thank you for the plug in here.
0: (laughs) Thank you, sir, so much for your time.
2: Okay. Thank you very much.
0: This is your host, Annie Fedotova. Thank you for listening to Blue Grid Podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and resilience to normalize the airman's and any service member's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope, grit, and recovery. If you have feedback or recommendations, please find me on the global and my email is anna.vfedotova.mil at mail.mil. It's anna.v.fedotova. F-E-D-O-T-O-V-A dot mil at mail dot mil. Special thanks to Chris Hastings of Hastings Productions for mixing the podcast. Credit for the soundtrack I found you from the album Museum Pieces goes to Melvin no Go Music.